0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me today is Timur Hammond, an assistant professor in the Department of Geography and the Environment at Syracuse University. Today we'll be discussing his new book, Placing Islam Geographies of Connection in 20th Century Istanbul, which was published by University of California Press in 2023 and looks closely at how different individuals groups, and institutions have sought to place Islam by making and transforming the neighborhood of Ayyub. So, the first question I'd like to ask you is to tell a little bit about yourself and your background. What brought you to these topics of Islam, Istanbul, and Ayyub? Why do you think looking at Islam in a particular location is helpful for our thinking?
1: Yeah. Thanks, thanks for these questions. Um, so a quick way of introducing myself is I'm a cultural and urban geographer who studies how cities are experienced and understood. Uh, but I also like to think of myself as very much a sort of interdisciplinary scholar who d- researches and engages with historians, with art historians, with uh, cultural studies people, with people who do literature. Um, so I'd like to think my my project is very much a sort of interdisciplinary engagement with these questions. I actually finished undergrad as an English major and creative writing minor um, and was nudged sort of very gently into geography by a faculty member at the time or a faculty mentor at the time. But what this means is that my first encounter with Ayup, um, you know, I've been going to Istanbul for for decades. Um, I have a family connection there, a family connection to Turkey, and so I'd been to Istanbul a couple times as a child, as a sort of teenager, uh, and later on in my my twenties. Um, but my first encounter with Ayup was actually shaped by Orhan Pamuk's memoir, Istanbul Memories in the City. Um, so I was wrote about that memoir for my master's thesis. Um, like a lot of master's theses, not terribly memorable, um, but Pamuk talks about Ayup at one point in there. Uh, and I was really struck and I was like, you know, this way that Pamuk talked about Ayub, um, the way that he talked about Islam, didn't seem entirely consistent with my experiences and my understanding of the place. And so it became a point of departure for me. Why is looking at Islam geographically useful for our thinking? Um, I mean, I think this is. You will probably keep coming back to this question as over the course of our conversation. But one of the guiding questions for my work is: How is it that people construct geographies of Islam? Like, how do they figure out where it is in the world? And one of the arguments I try to make in the book is that when people often think about geography, they imagine it to be a kind of container within which everything takes place. So we we imagine that we are somehow in space, and that space is a container with various dimensions. Um, one of the interventions my book tries to make is instead thinking about geography through the metaphor of connections. So understanding places where we are in the world is always formed through these acts of connection that link us to other places, times, and objects in complicated and shifting ways. Mm.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you're right. We can, we will come back to these connections in just a moment, and AUP in particular in just a moment. But maybe we can talk for a second also about one of your your big analytic frameworks that you use throughout the book, which is this idea of building stories, you call it. Now, this term, building stories, it has multiple meanings and maybe implications for how we can think about the relationships you're talking about between people, places, and Islam. But can you talk about some of these implications, some of these meanings that you mean by building stories?
1: Yeah. um, So thanks for this question. I mean, it really... um it's something that helped me at least think about organizing the book about the kinds of arguments that I was trying to make. And so there are a couple things that I think the concept pulls together. So the first of them is a a conversation um, that's happening within Islamic studies, um, that's happening within history, that's happening within anthropology, within geography, that has to do with the materiality of storytelling, the materiality of meaning. Uh, and so, although this work takes a variety of forms, one of the key sort of interventions and contributions that it makes is that the meaning of things is actually shaped by and mediated by the the materiality of things. So, when we we're not simply studying narratives, ideas, cultures, uh, cultural histories, but we're also thinking about the role that materiality of objects like pamphlets or documents, um, art objects. Um, all of these things sort of shape the materiality of how stories come to matter. Um, One of the things that I try to do in the book is think about buildings as one type of object that mediates these stories. So in one sense, building stories is an analytic that calls our attention to the role that buildings, the built environment plays in transmitting stories, narratives, ideas about who people are and where they find themselves. But a second thing that it pulls on uh, is one, uh, again, that art historians uh, do uh, especially well, but also anthropologists. And that has to do with kind of thinking critically about the ways that we narrate the history of buildings. So there's one approach and the work of the anthropologist Nadia Abul-Haj, um, I think makes this very clear that th- sees buildings as sort of facts on the ground. And there's a way that says, well, a building is there, it just is. Um, and its meaning is fixed is one of the reasons why buildings are so important. But as Nadia Abu hajj does so effectively in thinking about Jerusalem, and as I try to do in thinking about, um, thinking about Ayyub in particular, what we need is a sort of critical project that looks at how meanings, narratives, ideas about buildings are actually produced, transmitted, and communicated in the first place. So there's the second way that building stories works. And then third, um, there's been a conversation within geography in particular uh, in, over the past, say, decade or so that's really turned to stories and storytelling as a new kind of analytic. Um, And so here we could say there's a narrative in the 1990s. um, Geographers and others were often talking about discourses. Um, Then as the 90s go along, early 2000s, we start to talk about narratives. Uh, And in a variety of ways, the, the past decade has seen this like really just explosion of scholarship that has turned to stories and storytelling as an analytic. And so this is really important for me, but one of the things that I try to do is think a little bit between this idea of story and then the, the Turkish word that I use, a uh, rivayet um, or in Arabic, riwaya, um, which is not exactly a story, but there's a kind of interesting and productive overlap, but also a sort of gap between those two that I think helps to speak back to the sort of Anglophone assumptions about discourses, narratives, and stories um, and works within a tr- different tradition, and particularly an Islamic tradition, to think about the acts of transmission and narration that form these traditions of Islam.
0: Hmm. Well, let's get into some examples of this. But uh, first, for listeners who may or may not be familiar with Aup, let's uh, let's set the stage a bit. Can you give us a a thumbnail introduction to Aup? what we might hear in Lonely Planet or in Wikipedia? And then also maybe point out some of the things that are missed in those type of familiar descriptions we get of a place like Aup.
1: Yeah. So... If we, we kind of imagine our map of Istanbul, um, you know, Istanbul, the city on two continents and was divided by the Bosphorus between. So you're looking at a map, you've got the Bosphorus to your left is the European shore to the right is the Anatolian shore. So then if you're on the European shore, there's that second spur of water, the golden horn that sort of separates the old peninsula of Istanbul from the districts of Galata, Beolu, Taksim, Besiktas, everywhere to the north along that shore. And so that Golden Horn, as it moves to the west, as it moves to the left, will sort of taper out eventually. And Ayup is a neighborhood. um, The the old Ayup is a neighborhood along the Golden Horn, on the southern end of the Golden Horn, just outside the Byzantine land walls. Um, So, in sort of classical Ottoman Istanbul, uh, it's not actually part of Istanbul proper. Um, It's part of the um, the three suburbs, along with Galata and Üsküdar, um, sort of organized in that in that different category. It's important for two reasons. Um, First, it is definitely part of this old Ottoman Istanbul. Um, It has a dense cluster of mosques, medrases, tombs, cemeteries, Sufi lodges, and civil architecture. So there's a really sort of important kind of historical richness there. Uh, The street pattern is very much, at least in the the center of the district, is very much built around that um, older Ottoman tradition. And then second, and this is sort of the, the core of the book's argument, is it's a center of Muslim Istanbul. Um, it is arguably um, one of the one of the most, if not the most important Muslim pilgrim- pilgrimage destination, uh, because of the person who is buried at the center uh, of the Mosque of Ayyub Sultan, who is Khalid bin Zaid Ebu Ayyub al Ansari, um, who is a companion of the Prophet Muhammad, um, who is um, a companion as a Sahabe in Arabic Sahaba. Um, these are people who kind of interacted with the Prophet Muhammad uh, during the Prophet's life. Uh, Haddad bin Zaid was part of the uh, one of the Arab armies who comes and lays a siege to Istanbul in the 7th century, and he dies outside the city walls. It's the miraculous rediscovery of his body in 1453 that's sort of taken by the Ottomans as uh, religious sanction for the capture of Istanbul. Um, and depending on the history you read, sort of inspires the army or sort of um, uh, plays a, a big part in, as Kafis Kafescioulu has pointed out, uh, making uh, turning Constantinople into Istanbul. So these these two parts of Ayub as, as a important part of sort of physical heritage site, a part of old Istanbul, um, and Ayub's crucial religious importance are often the ways that um, the two primary ways that people will talk about Ayub and why it's important. So if you read a Lonely, Lonely Planet guidebook, you'll often find that. But these ways of narrating Eyüp's history miss a few things. First, it tends to miss the, or it tends to emphasize, I think, overemphasize the Ottoman past and really one portion of the Ottoman past at the expense of the district's 20th century history. So my book very intentionally focuses not on the Ottoman Eyüp, but on 20th century Eyüp, because I think it speaks back uh, to that, uh, offers a, a corrective to that tendency to sort of focus only on the Ottoman past. Second, this way of sort of just explaining Abe's history or significance tends to obscure the work of transmission. Like, how do people learn about this? How do they write stories? How do they publish books? How do they transmit this meaning across time and through various communities? And third, it tends to obscure the debates within and between people, both AUP residents but Istanbul residents more broadly, Turks, non Turks more broadly, um, about how history and Islam should be understood in the first place. So rather than think of these categories are sort of fixed and unchanging. One of the things I try to do in the book is kind of add some complexity and sort of shed some light on some of the debates over how Islam, how Halid bin Zaid, how this district in particular um, should matter in the urban life of Istanbul's residents.
0: Well, indeed, in the beginning of the book, you start out by looking at a several different stories that are told about Ayyub, about Khalid bin Zaid. So maybe you could give us a few examples of these, of these stories and how they try to connect to different times and places and understandings of what Ayyub means and what it means for being a Muslim. To give us some examples of what you're talking about.
1: So there, there are a bunch of different stories in the book, and these the stories continue to be told. Um, one of the f- my favorite stories, and for me, like a, a really, again, an interesting point of departure, is an essay written by Yahya Kemal Beatle, or Yahya Kemal, um, while Istanbul is under occupation. So in these series of essays that I think are later republished in the book Aziz Istanbul, um, these are essays that Involve Yahya Kemal traveling through the city's peripheral districts often, um, and writing about the the Muslim worlds, the, particularly writing about Islamic landscapes in these sort of rural or not rural, but in these peripheral districts of Istanbul. Um, I first learned about Kemal's work um, through Orhan Pamuk. He's you know in in Pamuk's memoir, uh, Yahya Kemal is one of the sort of four Istanbul writers that Pamuk is sort of writing himself into conversation with, and so I sort of always had. Yahya Kemal Beata on my radar. And this um, this essay that he writes, uh, The Ayup That We Saw in a Dream, bir, uh, um, always struck me as this really kind of interesting story. You know, he, he makes a very conscious decision to sort of place this tomb, place this figure of Halid bin Zayd at the center of Istanbul's importance, which, of course, that kind of storytelling in the context of Istanbul's occupation is absolutely a political project. Uh, he's telling a story about the conquest of, uh, of Istanbul, the, the capture of a Christian Constantinople by Muslim armies at the very same moment that uh, Mustafa Kemal is leading the, the war for independence in Anatolia and approaching Istanbul. So for me, there's, there seemed to be this obvious resonance uh, resonance of like telling Hale bin Deid's story telling this as a story of conquest, of the story of uh, Fatih Sultan Mehmed, um, as a story of sort of janissary inspirations, seemed to be very much connected to the political project, um, the political and cultural agenda in 1920s Istanbul.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I was just going to ask if maybe you can contrast that with one of the uh, other examples you give. Uh, the one, one that I was thinking about was uh, Mohammed Emin Yildirim's uh, public lecture, what, 50, 60 years after. I mean, how do you see these type of stories as connecting with each other or contrasting?
1: Yeah. So there, I mean, this becomes the interesting thing is that the story of Hale bin Zayd has been told uh, time and time and time and time again, over, over centuries, really. Um, and so in some ways, the, the book is an effort to sort of tease out important and interesting differences in how these stories are told. So, um, you know, Yahya Kemal Beytle is writing 1920s Occupied Istanbul. While I was finishing my field work in 2013, I happened to attend a lecture um, that was organized by a uh, foundation, uh vakuf known as the Siyer vakuf. Um, so this Siyer is a genre of Islamic writing that Narrates the histories of the prophet. Um, the idea usually these are um, sort of instructive lessons, um, stories, and what it means to be a good Muslim. And so the head of that foundation comes and gives a public lecture um, in the mosque of the sultan. So he sits before everybody, and he kind of um, he sits before this large audience. There, I was sitting outside the mosque at the time because they'd set up screens so you could actually sit outside the uh, outside the mosque and listen there. Um, it's also recorded on YouTube. You can find it there. And so he tells a story um, of Halle bin Zayd, you know, similar kind of contours. Uh, but there were some interesting differences and a couple of the differences that stood out. First, this is part of a project that the foundation was doing of finding a Sahabe for every il, every province in Turkey. So 82, uh, 82 provinces, 82 Sahabe. So what they've gone and done is sort of found a companion of the prophet or a companion who's ostensibly buried in each one um, and then use that to sort of tell a new kind of story. But that framing assumes actually a very particular kind of geography, which is the geography of modern Turkey. So in contrast, Yahya Kemal Beyatla is telling a story about Halid bin Zayd, um, where we don't yet have Republican Turkey. Instead, in 2013, Mohammed Amin Yildirim is telling a story Um, That is very much still set within that kind of framework. And a second point just to think about is the ways in which this 2013 lecture is very much sort of part and parcel of a then um, emergent sort of set of civil society discourses where, you know, this is at this point a decade into uh, the rule of the Justice and Development Party um, and really kind of an expanded public visibility of Islam. So thinking what it meant to tell a story of Halim Zaid, he was addressing a different kind of public in 2013 than Yahya Kemal Beyatla had been doing in the 1920s.
0: Well, that's that's very interesting. You know, I I want to I want to come back to the AKP era, but we have now so we have this example from about 1919 1920, and this example from 2013 that you give. In your book, though, you argue that the 1950s so smack dab in the middle of this is one of the most important periods for telling news stories about AUP, for rethinking connections between people and places in AUP. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I
1: mean, this is this is work I, that you yourself, I think, have been doing sure, a lot yeah. on. And, um, <laughs> it, this is for people who are doing Turkish studies right now, I think there's a lot of interest in the 1950s as a sort of inflection point. Um, And I think a number of things are happening, right? So there's a demographic transition. Um, The 1950s is where we start to see a generation who was born and raised in the Republic of Turkey. Um, That generation starts to come of age and become increasingly visible. Meanwhile, you have generations of, say, writers um, who were adults young adults or in their 30s in in the 1920s so that generation who had grown up under the Ottoman Empire and who had kind of lived through the trauma of the Balkan Wars who had lived through the trauma of World War one, the trauma of occupation uh, the trauma of just the the far-reaching violence of the the 1910s um, that generation starts to pass away in the 1950s um, A couple people are really passing away earlier but there's this really this moment of sort of demographic, uh transition where a new generation is sort of coming to the fore in this the set of writers writing in the 1950s there is a a group at least that I was reading who are i think reflecting on what it means to be to be aging uh and approaching what, the end of one's life in this moment of rapid change so a demographic transition we have of course the political trans- transformation of the the transition of multi-party democracy beginning in the, in the 1940s but really um in the the context of the 1950s we have new sort of um, economic relations, and Gavin Brockett has told this story very effectively, um, and the ways in which that creates the possibility for new sort of cultural consumer markets. Uh, and then we have the far-reaching urban transformations as you have large-scale rural to urban migration to go with uh, the, the massive urbanization, the massive urban transformations of the Menderes project. So the, the really the transformation of Istanbul by bulldozer um and the building of the large boulevards that now define the city so all of these things are happening in the context of the 1950s and i think they create this interesting anxiety about places like aup because aup had been associated with uh a with sort of not the unchanging but with a kind of a density of the past a density of things that had seemingly stayed the same and so i think Ayut becomes an interesting object of discussion in this moment
0: are there any writers from the period who particularly uh, you find particularly interesting from the 1950s
1: all of them uh no i mean the the 1950s like the, uh, they're all great some of the essays that i love the most um samrat muftar alus um is a he's a writer a folklorist um, he is writing he has this amazing essay about um, the the toy keepers of Ayoub but it's so it kind of involves him kind of wandering um, Ayoub was known of course and is known for the, the mosque at its center and the two-minute center but just you know a two-minute walk outside the mosque um, was a small street known as the Toy Makers Boulevard and you know, this was a the the mosque has always had an association with young boys who are about to be circumcised, and so the idea you go, you take your son to pray um, either right before their circumcision, after their circumcision, and then would often uh, buy them a, a small toy. And so the the toys are, you know, traditionally made of wood, made of clay, um, small little things. And he has this incredibly vivid and evocative description of sort of walking by and looking at the toys that are being sold in the market and saying, you know, these are tin, these are plastic. Um, and I think he flips one over and it's like in, in this uh, made in Germany stamp. And it's this kind of interesting moment of dislocation or disorientation uh, to to think about the ways that Istanbul's or that Ayup has been changing. And I think he finishes and he's walking back in the direction of the ferry and coming to the shore Here's a couple of young men um, kind of talking very loudly in the way that young men do outside of a cafe about the dance that they're going to go to and they're singing, you know, whistling a tango or something like that. And so, again, these kinds of points about change, um, both change in the built environment, but also change in the social landscape uh, is one of the reasons why I love, love that essay.
0: yeah, I think that's that's a very nice example of what I – yeah, as someone who was interested in 1950s Turkey, I particularly liked that chapter and a lot of the examples you have. Um, And I hope people who read the book will also pay particular attention to that chapter. But um, let's move forward, though, to the 90s, which is, I think, after the 50s, the period where you really see there being these new stories and new buildings – that try to change the relationship or rethink the relationship between Islam and the population and the public. So during the 90s, as you said, the AKP or the predecessor parties come to power in a lot of the Istanbul municipalities, Ayup among them. So how did the victories of sort of self-consciously religious politicians in a place like Ayup lead to changes?
1: Yeah. So I think that the 1990s are this really interesting period. But before we get there, it's also useful to sort of step back and understand a little bit about the ways that Istanbul's urban governance is reorganized following the September 12th, 1980 coup. So what happens is they reorganize, they create the, the system of the Byukbe, Edise, the sort of greater municipality, the metropolitan municipality, and then the ilçe Belediere, the sort of district municipalities. And so Eyüp becomes one of those. Um, as this is happening, you know, ab- up to that point had really been become a working class district. Um, the golden horn had been more or less completely filled in with factories, with workshops, with depots. And those business establishments had become sort of core to the social and cultural life of the district. You know, workers would come down and they'd work on the shore. Uh, the day would end. They'd kind of walk back up the hill to wherever they were living on the, on the slopes or on the sort of like inner districts. Uh, all of those were wiped out in the 1980s, uh, thanks to and uh, Dalan at that moment. He comes in and he wipes everything out. He moves industry to the peripheries of Istanbul. Um, and that creates a real question for Eyup. Like, in If AyUP is no longer going to be a working class district organized around these factories, what kind of district will it be? And so one of the things that immediately happens is saying, wait a minute, we have this opportunity to appreciate all of the, this Ottoman heritage that is here. Um, Ayyub's Ottoman heritage can be rethought and uh, re-restored in a way that will turn this into a tourist district. And so you have a variety of small projects in the 1980s. um, People like Zeynep Ahunbay Ahunbay, um, actually does a a restoration project that shows up as part of an Aga Khan um, kind of conversation about Islamic cities. Uh, someone named Nezik Al-dem, um, a really well-known architect, comes and joins the planning office, the newly established planning office in the municipality. Um, in the early 1990s, there's a project in which the the history foundation, the Tari Fakfa, and Duan Kuban actually go about trying to put a restoration project for the district as a whole. So there were a number of sort of projects in the works for ways to restore, rehabilitate AUP and sort of turn it recover this Ottoman past. But then we have the the election in 1994. And that both changes things but it also leads to new kind of opportunities. And so as you know in talking, I don't know if all this makes it into the book, um, but what happened is the 1994 election aligned the district municipality. Uh, the metropolitan municipality was then uh, led by uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and uh, had access to funding at the national level. And so in short order, the municipality who had had all these plans but not had the money or support to go about enacting them goes about restoring um, all of the buildings they can as quickly as they can. Um, so this often leads to um, things like uh, tombs or cemeteries, uh, medreses. Uh, tech is these are all because they're state property. They're, there's an effort spearheaded by the local municipality to restore these as kind of like highly visible uh, demonstrations of the sort of the the efficacy, the the value of what district municipality, the district muni- municipality could do. But this is absolutely allied to a cultural, religious, political project of the then welfare party, Refah Party, in in the 1990s, which had a lot to do with. Um, you know, uh, countering what they saw as the rejection of the Ottoman past, where the Ottoman past had been rejected by um, the uh, Republican People's Party, um, what they were doing is instead recovering this uh, true Ottoman Muslim heritage that had been left to rot. Um, and so, again, here the built environment becomes a really important part. Um, and so, again, this is, I think, a pretty clear example of how building stories work. Is the municipality goes about restoring these buildings to say, like, see what we're doing is we're, we're recovering the true AUP that had always been here, that had been left to, to left to, um, to left to pass away or rot away, um, and so it did very important political work for them. The mayor at the time, Ahmed Gench, uh, won election in 1994, 1999, um, and 2004 again. Um, so he was really quite a, a popular and successful mayor, in part because he had done such an effective job at sort of presenting himself as this um, protector and custodian of Abe's true Ottoman and Muslim identity.
0: And uh, in the case of Ahmed Gensh, uh, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about this um, wonderful uh, this fountain, I guess it is, right, that he leaves behind as his, his legacy in the district. Um, I found that particularly interesting. Yeah. So
1: if you um, – are lucky enough to be able to go to Ayup and, and are walking from the, the mosque itself and you want to go up to the, the hill, which is known as by some people as the Ayyub Sultan Hill, Ayyub Sultan Tepese, um, but is known by many other people simply as Pierloti. Um, before you start taking the stairs going up the hill, you will see a fountain right at the at the corner, and the fountain written on top of it is Ebedi Ayyub Sultan Lalar, so the eternal um Ayyub Sultan Le. Uh, residents of A, the inhabitants of Ayub. So first, there is an, a self-conscious shift to uh, calling it Ayyub Sultan and not Ayub, um, which is again part of the debate over names and identities that I sort of touch on in the book. Um, and what they do is they kind of write all of the people who are who have been buried in Ayub, and so in this, by being buried in Ayub, by virtue of this, they've come to be sort of the eternal residents. But as I, as I learned in doing the research, this fountain actually had a contested history. Like a lot of cemeteries, um, if you go to cemeteries in Istanbul, you will often find the, um, the headstone makers, the mezardze, will have small little uh, shacks where they basically do their work, uh, small little play- business establishments right at the edge of a cemetery. And so where that fountain is today had been a cemetery, a mezardze. And what Ahmed Genç does... According to the stories that I read, is he basically uses his authority as um, the Mezarja didn't want to give up their spot, or there was a basically struggle over inheritance, and Gensch used his authority as mayor to basically work a set of connections to expel the Mezarja from the spot, and in his place he builds uh, this cemetery or builds this fountain just next to the way. If you pay attention, um, is his family plot Um, is his father. The last time I went, his father is buried there and you can kind of see that as well. Um, And then there's this neat thing that there's an inscription written in Ottoman, um, which is itself interesting and noteworthy. Um, at the top of the fountain. And if you, again, are in Istanbul, you see this is a very characteristic thing for Ottoman-era fountains, is they'll have the inscription, um, oftentimes referencing the patron who builds them, and it'll say some sort of, um, you know, something to do with why the fountain was built, what a beautiful fountain this is, what a a, a charitable and pious person, the person who endowed it is. Um, You know, think of them, pray for them as you're you're drinking from this water. And Ahmed Gensh's fountain does something very similar. Um, What a, you know saying, you know, praising him for making such a beautiful fountain, um, drink the water uh, in good health. Um, And as you do, uh, you know, also, you know, keep in mind Ahmed uh, Gensh and his piety uh, and thank him um, as you're drinking water as as you go along. So there's this interesting history um, in the 1990s that I think is there in plain sight, but isn't always as visible um, when we sort of first walk through and wander through the district.
0: Well, so this this brings us up to the the present day, I suppose. I think uh, for listeners, I hope we've done a decent job of giving some sense of the variety of things you cover in talking about sort of the pre-Aképe era, the 20s, the 50s. But when we come up to the present day, one of the things I thought was particularly interesting to read in your book is the way you, I think maybe challenge the way we sometimes talk about or think about present-day Istanbul as this period of 20 years of AKP dominance, Erdogan dominance, and how there's just this sort of one vision that's being put in place. And what I I got from your book is that there's still, in a place like Eyüp, all these competing stories and competing understandings and debates people are having about what it means to be Muslim, what it means to be a Turkish Muslim what it means to be Turkish, all these things are still being discussed in Eyüp. And I think you do such a good job of showing these these different issues people are debating. So maybe we can look at some of them. And I I was hoping we could look at, especially the way you talk about uh, the Ramadan uh, festivities and the way people think and discuss those.
1: Yeah, thanks for this question. So I was lucky enough to be in Istanbul for two Ramadans um, during my fieldwork. And so the first was fell in 2012, the second fell in 2013. Um, and beginning actually under Ahmed Gensh in the 1990s, the AyUp municipality had spent a lot of time and effort turning AyUp into a Ramadan destination. And so if again, if you spend time in Istanbul during Ramadan, you will see various municipalities, usually the sort of conservative ones affiliated with the AKP, um, with the Justice and Development Party, will organize public Ramadan events. So uh, Sultan Ahmed is a one very big example. You'll go in the Fatih municipality. Will have a huge, you know, spread of things of uh, shops and uh, performances and this and that. Um, and something similar happened in Ayup. Um, but in 2009, um, the mayor changed, um, and so Ahmed Gensh had been term limited out. He had served his three terms, and so they brought in a new candidate. Uh, named Ismail Kavunju. Um, Kavunju, when I was there in, in doing fieldwork, was widely known as being affiliated with the Gulen movement, um, and so that sort of became a running story in um, in kind of in not a running story, but it was in the background of the work that I was doing. and sort of these debates about the ways in which people affiliated with the Gulen movement had come to transform parts of Ayub. So a variety of buildings under Ahmed Gensh had been turned into uh, public libraries, for example. These were state-owned properties that had been leased to the local municipality and they turned them into a library or a cafe or some sort of public institution. Under Kavunju, many of these places had actually been turned into for-profit establishments. So they'd been turned into hotels or restaurants. All of this means that when we come to Ramadan, because Ayyub is so... Important and so popular, there's a really powerful profit incentive at work. Um, you can make as much in a month, sort of running a shop or running a, a small restaurant in Ayup as you might in a year elsewhere, um, even though you're paying really uh, exorbitant rent for that month. And so it becomes into a profit generation. Uh, for both the local municipality who's selling the right to use these things. And it's also an important business opportunity for various restaurateurs and cafe owners. But this, of course, raises really all sorts of logistical issues, like should people eat in public? Um, you know, it raises questions of class. Um, you know, people who would want to come and have a nice Ramadan iftar um, at a nice restaurant overlooking the mosque might not want to look out in the square and see... Um, you know, uh, basically the, the working class people who live in surrounding districts coming down to have their iftar, um, in the big Maidan in the big square in front of the mosque, logistical issues dealing with, um, you know, how you negotiate people coming to, to have their iftar in the square, and then the ways in which municipal staff and mosque staff would want to clear the square to open it up for the uh, supererogatory prayers, uh, Tehravi prayers during Ramadan. You know, the questions of, um, you know, how do we relate to our, our neighbors who are fasting who might not be fasting? In 2013, the municipality heard all their critiques about what had happened in 2012 and it sort of swung back the other way and set up a lot, building these arcades modeled on the Ottoman era arcades in the Kaaba in Mecca. And again, for some people, they really liked the ambiance, but for other people, they looked and this, they said, this is a show. Um, it's like, it has no meaning. It has no substance. So one of the things that I think this shows is that the debate, the fault line in Turkey, or in Istanbul, isn't simply between a sort of religious way of life and a, and a secular way of life, but rather you get these really kind of complicated debates between Muslims about the ways in which being Muslim uh, requires uh, or carries with it certain expectations about how you relate to, the, to your neighbors. Um, and again, hopefully the chapter sort of, I think one of the things that it does well is makes visible sort of the range of perspectives and experiences that are located in located in Ayyub during that month of fasting.
0: Hmm. And you know, not just at Ramadan, but around the year two, you talk about uh, the issue of the, the visibility of women, uh, female worshippers. And, and partially that's because of the size of the crowds, but also because of the layout of the Ayyub complex. Uh, it creates these issues of visibility that also are being debated. So perhaps uh, you could talk about that too. Yeah, and this is something that I touch on, I didn't do maybe
1: as well as I know they're um, thinking. So, Sevgi Adak um, has written really wonderfully about gender and Islam. Um, and then also, Gokchen Bein Lidinch has also written wonderfully about sort of the gender of gender and pilgrimage and um, in ziyaret in, in Ayyub Sultan in particular. So, I kind of wanted to, to mention them as people who have really done. A much better job than I have of kind of thinking through these questions. But um, because the tomb is one, is, we, you see just greater numbers of women visiting the tomb. Uh, the visibility of women in the mosque in the first place is larger than it might be in a mosque like Sultan Ahmed, in a mosque like um, like Suleymaniyeh, for example. So you get this kind of visibility of women visiting and praying in the mosque, um, and in a, a sort of density of visitation that you don't necessarily see elsewhere. But that crowd, like the numbers of people actually, again, raise particular issues during Ramadan because you becomes so crowded. Um, and so the question of should women pray in front, um, how you maintain the, you know, how you maintain those norms or do or do not maintain those norms one of the stories i tell in the book then is the differences between um madhubs, whether you're shafi or hanafi um actually have really interesting consequences for how gender is negotiated so in if you're in a hanafi tradition and you do your ablutions it doesn't necessarily matter if you bump into if you're a man and you bump into a woman on the way to pre- uh, perform your prayers like that isn't going to um to violate your state of r- ritual cleanliness. In contrast, if you're if you're educated in a, in a Shafi tradition, uh actually and you're a man, bumping into a woman can uh pollute or kind of make you lose that state of ritual cleanliness and force you to do those ablutions again. And so, obviously in a crowd you're going to bump into people and one of the things that I realized is that again, the the ways that those sort of gendered interactions um have actually interesting and important consequences as as people are moving through this kind of densely packed space um, in a month uh, in the month of Ramadan. Hmm.
0: And also, I mean, not again, not just Ramadan, or maybe not even particularly Ramadan, but you talk about uh, the signage and the language that's that's around a- Ayub, and I also found that very interesting too. And so maybe we could finish on talking about that a little bit.
1: Yeah and there's, I will answer this question. I wanted to raise one other kind of really clear example about sort of the ongoing debate over these places and meanings. But uh, your, your question about signage, you know, it's all over the, the signage, very specifically instructing women. Um, here's the proper way to dress. Uh, don't wear tight pants. Make sure you're covering your head. Um, and it is... Again, it's it's speaking to the what I call like the rules of place that operate. That though, these rules of place are going to operate unevenly, um, and gender plays a really important role. Women's bodies, um, not surprisingly, are policed in a very different kind of way um, than than men's bodies are, um, which I think is connected to sort of broader gender dynamics about um, uh, sort of uh, broader geographies of gender of gendered Islam in Istanbul, and in particular, and more broadly in Turkey and, and the world more generally. So I think there's that's that's part of the story is really this emphasis that the mosque staff, um, the local muftu or you know municipality staff as well will make to sort of do this, but again. In Ayub, it's different than neighborhoods like Fatih, for or some of the sort of more conservative neighborhoods of Fatih or various places. Just to to, to share a caricature about Fatih, but as somebody you know who was then working for the mun- municipality told me, we're standing there and talking during Ramadan and we're looking things out. And he said, you know, you can't find this openness and range of things. Um, so I do want to say that Ayub, there are restrictions and there are norms and expectations about how women should cover themselves or dress um, as part of the, an act of pilgrimage. Um, but again, there's, I think, a broader spectrum of dress, um, than you find in, in some of the other districts of Istanbul, um, which I think is, is a reminder that Ayup is, has been, and will continue to be an important Muslim pilgrimage site, but the ways in which that Muslimness is understood and in, in sort of embodied and inhabited as a form of dress, um, are always going to be open to sort of debate and negotiation and plurality. So there's, I think that's a, a useful thing to remember about Ayup is that it's not a single single type of being Muslim. It's not a single type of dress. The other thing I wanted to hopefully, if I have a, a minute or two, is just talk a little bit about is the um, uh, ongoing transformations to fesane So Feshane is an um, important building in Ayup's 19th century history. It is founded by the Ottoman state. Um, as part of the Ottoman Empire's attempt to modernize and industrialize. Uh, and so it becomes a really important, as the name suggests, uh, factory for the production of the fez and will later on expand its production to textiles more generally. Uh, under the 20th century, it is a crucial uh, industrial linchpin of the district's economy, of Ayup's economy and sort of social life. Uh The state-owned, the public company that runs the factory is privatized um, and sells off Fessane. And so in the 1980s, the municipality faces this question of, well, what do we do with this building? There is an attempt in the early 1990s to learn from the example of cities like London, which had, again, gone similar sort of economic transformations and had turned its former industrial sites into new cultural centers. So the Tate Modern is an example that's referenced. And there's a a brief attempt to turn Fesane into uh, Istanbul Modern, what would become the Istanbul Modern Art Museum. It fails for a number of reasons, in in large part because the 1994 election brings this to a close. Um, The municipality at that time tries to turn it into a sort of nostalgic Ottoman marketplace. It doesn't take. Um, by the time I was doing my fieldwork in 2011, it was instead being used for a variety of cultural fairs and like uh, various like uh, district days for, you know, as was Garrison days or Hatai days. Um, it was being used for sort of various fairs like that. Eventually it closes um, and it's just the, the building sits there. And when I was finishing the book, there were rumors that it would turn into a museum of Sufism. But the 2023 election, or the when 2019 election happens, um, and Imamoloo comes to power, and instead there's an effort to turn the building into a new contemporary art space, which is what it is now. Uh, this is something I've written a little bit on the UC Press blog, um, so if people are interested, they can find some. Um, it, and more or less immediately, you have conservative groups, conservative religious groups, complaining um, and seeing the building as uh, spreading LGBTQ propaganda, um, and you know their efforts to—they've uh, appealed to the Istanbul prosecutor to basically convict the curators um, on the part of inciting the the public to bad morality. Um, and very much caught up in the contemporary moment of politics, it seems inescapable that this is going to continue to be debated in the um, lead up to the municipal elections next year. Um, but it is a reminder that the, the debates over places and their meanings and how these buildings should be used um, continue to be an ongoing struggle. Um, then they are not fixed um, and are worthy of our ongoing attention.
0: Well, I'm glad you gave that Fesana example as well because it it really does speak to the range of interesting examples that the book contains. And I think it goes to the fact that we only covered a small amount in this discussion. In particular, there's a chapter you have about water and the way it also connects people and stories about water and ideas about water connect people in places as well. So for that, and for many more things, I think people really should go and read the book, um, knowing that you have a background in English, uh, helps explain the flowing literary quality of the writing at times. Um, and yeah, I thought it was excellent. And that leads me to my last question, which is simply what topics, what questions are you turning your attention to now? Yeah.
1: A couple of different things. Um, so first, thanks for, thanks for the kind words about the book. Um, it is a book, Hopefully, you know, I, I hope it speaks to a number of audiences, but um, really for people who know Istanbul, I hope they are able, they, they read it and they recognize in Istanbul they know, but learn to see it from a slightly different point of view. Um, so I really hope that the book speaks to that. And I'm incredibly grateful to UC Press for making the book available op- open access. So anyone can download it to their their reader as a PDF. Um, it's available for people to read um, and share as they, as they see fit. In terms of where I'm going from here, a couple of projects that I'm trying to balance. I think I'm going to continue to write about uh, the geographies of Islam. Um, so I've written a little bit recently about the cultural historian, writer, intellectual, doctor, teacher, um, Ahmed Suhail in there. Um So I think Nder's work, is he spends a lot of time in Ayupah throughout his life. Um, so his work becomes a, is something that I want to continue to work with as part of, a, I think, a broader conversation that is happening right now in the discipline to to rethink um, some of the paradigms we have about how to study Islam in 20th century Turkey. The second thing that I've been writing about, although I've stepped back a little bit from it, is the aftermath of the 2016 coup attempt and the ways in which that coup attempt or the resistance to the coup attempt has been commemorated in a variety of ways, including uh, websites, books, various media, um, and particularly through these sort of memorial landscapes that show up all over Istanbul. Uh, including in Ayyub. And then the third thing that I'm trying to do and trying to work through is very much inspired by a, a recent turn within both geography and Istanbul studies, uh, sort of, we could say the environmental turn. Um, and I've been trying to write about trees. And so there's a particular species of tree. Um, the Latin name is Ilanthus altissima, um, the English name is the tree of heaven. Uh, in Turkish, the polite name for it is Kokad Aj. Um, also, ailandos, um, but there's another name for those who know. Those who know me, it comes. There's a, a more vulgar name for the tree that often smells quite poorly. Um, but trying to figure out how does one write a history of this tree that is everywhere in Istanbul, including Ayub, um, but doesn't really have an archival record. So I've been trying to think like, how does one write a write something interesting and meaningful about this tree that is very much an urban tree, but doesn't really show up visibly in the, the lives of the archive. So it's a, it's a question I'm trying to think through.
0: Oh, well, that sounds fascinating. And uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping there's maybe a scratch and sniff type book that could be produced out of it, even, you know? Sounds great. Yeah. But um, again, thank you for uh, talking about your book. It's a really wonderful book. And yes, as you say, it's easily accessible to anyone who hears this, is interested, and wants to read it further. So thank you very much. Ruben,
1: thanks so much. Um, yeah, thanks for such a, a generous set of questions and and um, the opportunity to join you today. So I really appreciate it.